Welcome to the 41st episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with John Armstrong, author of the novels Gray and Yarn. Also, I just wanted to take a moment and let you know about another books-related podcast that I listen to. I've been doing this over the last several podcasts. One, one book-related podcast that I often listen to is the show The Book Show. And it is broadcast originally on the NPR station in Albany, New York, WAMC. The host, Gretchen Holbrook-Gerzina, interviews a wide variety of authors, primarily literary and nonfiction authors. Uh, but she is an amazing interviewer. She's a writer. Uh, she's a writer herself. And again, the show is The Book Show. If you just do a Google search for WAMC, The Book Show, you'll find the website and you'll be able to subscribe to the podcast feed there. I, I definitely recommend it. It's a great show. Now stay tuned for my interview with John Armstrong. Well, this is uh, Jeffrey Deaver, author of uh, most recently The Burning Wire and uh, soon to be author of the next continuation James Bond novel. I spend a lot of time writing, a lot of time researching my books, um, but uh, when I'm not doing that, I, I love uh, listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast, which you can hear at readingandwritingpodcast.com. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Today, my guest is John Armstrong, author of the books Gray and his new book Yarn, which is a dystopic science fiction novel mixed with the fashion industry. Armstrong is also the host of his own podcast, if you're just joining us. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Sure. Well, I briefly described Yarn, your new novel, but can you talk about it in a little bit more detail for someone who may not be familiar with you or your novel Yarn? Well, you had to ask the most difficult question, <laughs> didn't you? Um, describing my works. You know what? I actually find that insanely difficult. And when I get the books and there's something written on the back, I think, thank God, you know, here, what is it? And what, what have I done is actually what I often think. Um, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a sci-fi book. I, I, that's true. Uh, it is kind of, it's dystopian. It's set in some kind of a bad future, but here's where my own take on it probably differs somewhat from how one might read it. I have a, I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with the place that I've written about. And part of me thinks it's really cool and amazing. And the other part thinks this is basically hell on earth in some regard. So, um, yeah, I've talked to people about whether I, th whether it's really dystopian. Everyone says it is, but sometimes I think it's not. So that probably only confuses the matter. Uh, it is a world of uh, great riches and, you know, very desperate uh, poor. And the book takes, the book's a protagonist is a tailor who is in the, um, is really one of the top fashion related people in the world, kind of like an Armani character in a way. And he kind of confronts where he has come from, oddly enough, uh, through uh, a journey that he that he takes to try and help an old lover. Okay. 
So, so fashion and science fiction was, was fashion an interest of yours before you started writing this book? And why'd you decide to write about a topic that to my knowledge has rarely been dealt with in science fiction? You said it has not been dealt with in science fiction. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I think my, or, or correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think you're probably mostly right. I mean, there are, there are snippets. Like I was reading a Philip K. Dick a while ago and he, you know, he plays around a little bit with, um, what people wear better than some science fiction. I mean, the cliches of science fiction is a, you know, the silver leotard, uh, not the leotard, but you know, a like a kind of a space suit, a, you know, like they'd wear on <laughs> old sci-fi yeah. movies. <laughs> um, my interest in fashion arose long ago, back in the 80s when I was in college and actually went to Japan uh, as a foreign exchange student. And I was, I was not interested in fashion at all until that point. Uh, the, the Japanese tend to be much better dressed than we are a little more formal with actually a lot of very good materials and interesting textiles and so on. I mean, we're basically in jeans and t-shirts over here. Um, and I kind of got, I got interested in, in fashion, started buying some things, although not a lot actually fit uh, in Japan. I came back and I'd heard about a place called FIT from some people there. FIT was the Fashion Institute of Technology where some of them uh, wanted to go and study. It's a school in, in New York. Years later, then I was in New York and thought, hey, maybe I'll go check that place out. And I ended up going and taking some classes and, and until I kind of flunked out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, So we're not that, going to see you on Project Runway one day? Uh, well, no, I could be the first voted off. Certainly, that, that's very likely. <laughs> Uh, you know, making making this stuff is really difficult. I've watched that show a number of times, and it's it's fascinating. But I really wish we saw more of what they do, the the real work, as less of the kind of gossip stuff, because it's actually really interesting. Um, I it, still... it, it is interesting, and, and and when I watch it, not to interrupt you, sorry. No um, when when I watch it, just given my knowledge of of sewing and the fact that I make quilts. It's it's astounding to me what they do in the amount of time, especially the one day challenges. And and I often watch it with my wife and and just shake my head and and say, you know, most most people watching this have absolutely no idea the the challenge of of having to to sew a garment and and have it fit and 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 have it be you know in their words fashion forward in in that amount of time. Yeah, I mean, I remember working on like. And I I did myself a disfavor by selecting a very difficult fabric to work with, which is, uh, you know, a concept people probably don't, if they haven't worked with different kinds of fabric, get. It was like a, like a chiffon kind of thing. And it was slippery. And just getting it to go through the machine mm -hmm. was in, like a, a physical contest. You had to grab the stuff and hold it, you know, as you worked the pedal of the sewing machine and like tugged it through and made, and that would still slip off and you'd. It, it was a disaster. Anyway, that was the course I finally failed. <laughs> um, but I, I'll tell you, at, at FIT, I had a couple of the most interesting classes I'd ever had, ever. Not that I was a huge fan of school, um, but there was a fashion 
what was it called? It was called the History of Fashion class, and then another called Textile Science. And those two classes, I still think about, it's been a decade or two decades later, I still think about, in fact, I'm in contact with the professors of one of them, and we, I interviewed him for my podcast, among other things. Um, why they were so fascinating? You know, I, I think because in part, we dress every day. We we do think about what what are we going to wear, and is is my shirt itchy, and you know is it comfortable, or does it fit, or do I look good in it? All those kinds of things, with very little knowledge about how they work, how they're made, and so on. And and when I started to see some of that world, it just seemed fascinating. Unlike say you know sword making, for which I have no contact. I'm sure it's fascinating. But I have no mm -hmm. swords in my life. I'm just picking something at random. But clothes, I mean, I've, you know, I've got a pile of them yeah. all, all <laughs> over the place. And uh, one example I like to give is jeans. We all wear jeans. Um, but that they were a, they're a specifically engineered uh, garment. That the fabric is, was engineered in a specific way for, a specific, you know, for people who were working in, in the mines or uh, you know, in the gold rush. You know, mm -hmm. trying to sifting through gunk and goo, trying to find a, a bit of gold. Uh, that Levi Strauss like consciously decided it wasn't, you know, oh, they're gonna blue would be a nice color. It was because that ink or, or dye indigo was gonna make some of the yarns very strong, and then he, the inside yarns. If you have remember old pants, old jeans where they were very dark and stiff on the outside, but then the inside was white or almost white. It's mm -hmm. a two-layered fabric to be hard, armor-like on the outside, yet soft to the skin on the inside. So, you know, and then the different, the pockets, you know, had it was all thought out. That that was all, like, deliberate and engineered, really. Just fascinated me. Interesting. I mentioned earlier that you have your own podcast. If you're just joining us, what was the impetus behind your podcast and, and getting started in, in podcasting? The, the idea came from, um, I, I decided to podcast my first novel gray back in 2007 when it came out being a first novel, having not written any short stories. I mean, no one, no one knew of me. So I mm -hmm. thought, it, and I talked to my publisher, and they thought, let's give it a try. So I, uh, I don't think it's, I think it's not really on the internet free. It's switching. That's another subject. Um, signed a contract, about to sign a contract with Audible for both books. But in the beginning, I recorded the whole thing and made it into, you know, MP3s and put it up online. And I don't quite know what the numbers are, but I mean, tens of thousands of people checked it out. So it was a big success. That's after, great. After it was done, I was left with a really nice microphone that I'd bought and thought, you know, maybe I'll try a, a podcast. It was, you know, uh, something that was cool, cooler maybe back then. And <laughs> so um, I started, you know, asking friends, uh, mostly uh, other writers who I knew. And it has evolved over the, t over the couple of years that I've done it into something that I really, really enjoy. It is sometimes technically difficult, but I've spoken really to some people I probably don't have any right speaking to in a way, uh, including a fashion designer, a uh, MIT-trained guy who's gone into food, who blogs, and a bunch of 
uh, really cool authors. It's a great way to have an interesting conversation with someone you don't really, you know, you've never really met most of the time. Sure. And I assume that you're uh, planning on continuing? Yeah. In fact, um, Yarn was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award recently. And so I got in touch with all of the other nominated authors. I guess there's six of us in total. And I've already done two interviews there on if you're just joining us.com. And I've got the rest coming up. So it's a kind of fun way to to get a behind the scenes look at some of these mostly are fairly new authors, but some really interesting books. That's great. And again, if you want to tell people the URL, it's uh, if you're just joining us.com. I think if you Google all, you know, if you're just joining us, I think it comes up in the first page. <laughs> great. Great. Well, we've we've talked about your your two novels, uh, Yarn and Gray. What initially drew you to writing? Have you been someone who uh, has been writing since an early age? Is it something that came along um, at a later point? And you mentioned also uh, a moment ago that you had not really published many short stories when your first novel came out. So um, I wonder if you are the type of writer that you never really worked on short stories. You would just went straight into uh, your first novel. Well, let's let me start by uh, introducing maybe the reason I, why I'm writing in in 12th grade. I had a uh, English teacher in high school. Her name was Mrs. Lentz. I don't I don't know if she's around anymore, but I'll give you one little detail about her. I a, f a friend of mine and I would we sat up toward the front. She always wore like a dress that would went to like below her knees. Occasionally, you know, when she'd sit a certain way, you could see that she shaved her legs only from her knees down. <laughs> and she was much hairier than we were in high school. Anyway, so after that image, sorry, um, I, I, I think she's great. What she had was, we had a regular class of whatever we did. I don't remember um, English stuff, but we also right. then. Were and and where to, was this? Where did you go to high school? Uh, this was in Columbia, Maryland, uh, kind okay. of a smack dab in the middle between Baltimore and D.C., a planned community. Um, I forget exactly why we ended up moving there, but it was actually a pretty good uh, place. Anyway, so we all had to get those composition notebooks, those black marbled kind of things. Mm -hmm. And each week, we were supposed to write something in there. And if and she would read it. And if she liked it, you would get a check plus. Now, what that really meant was if you're between grades, like a C and a B, and you had a couple check pluses in your composition book, it would bump you up. So it was like a, a way to help your grade. So I, over the year, I mean, I started writing just little, you know, one page, little stupid things I don't even remember. But toward the middle of the year, um, I started writing much longer pieces kind of based on characters in the class. And they, what would happen is the people in the class got interested. I don't remember exactly how, maybe I shared it once and someone said, oh, wait, you're writing about us. We want to see more. And the, my notebook would get passed around and the entries got longer and longer. And by the end of the the year I was writing 20 pages a week in there of just made up, you know, stuff, uh, um, mainly about the other 
uh, kids in the class. That was really the beginning. I've never quite looked back. Uh, it, it, what I wrote came in different forms. Next, I wanted to be a screenplay writer and mm-hmm. wrote a bunch of terrible, unmakeable, unreadable screenplays. <laughs> And, and, and how, how did you how did you find that experience versus uh, uh, prose? Uh, it probably was detrimental in that when you're writing a screenplay, you're writing only the tiniest bit of description, and the rest is all dialogue. Dialogue comes pretty easily to me. I mean, I, I think I could like make up a conversation between two people and just go on and on and on and on, and that's mm-hmm. a lot of what I had written. So there wasn't a lot of structure or maybe even interest in those things. Um, but after a while, I got t- tired of the idea that these would never be produced. And, you know, this is long before YouTube. I couldn't imagine, you know, making them myself. So I thought, well, I'll just switch to novels. But for years and years, maybe even decades, the novels were kind of badly written screenplays with not a lot of description and a lot of dialogue and It took a number of workshops and uh, a lot of people haranguing me before I started working much harder at at producing a a more traditional-shaped novel. And where were some of these workshops at? Were any of them some of the the science fiction workshops like Clarion? No, uh, no, I, I didn't. I didn't do that. Um, some of the workshops are from uh, college. Uh, I studied at the University of Pittsburgh is where I took a number of classes. Oh, I remember. I remember I handed in like a 90 page. I don't know. I guess it would be a novella. And <laughs> the guys, I remember the professor saying, well, this is, you know, it's a lot of, lot of words. That's back when you're starting out. I mean, just having like 15 pages is a lot. You know, I had 90 <laughs> And that was really right. all I had was 90 pages. No one could figure out what was going on. Um, I think the professor called it a Tower of Babel. And I thought, <laughs> well, okay. But it took you know, years of hearing, ba- you know, getting bad reviews from readers before I really could sit down and see it uh, for what it was. Um, the other workshops, there was a, uh, a workshop at the 90... Oh, no, the... 72nd Street Y in New York. And that was, it was a class about rewriting, something which I never did, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first time I really, that professor who I still know and adore, uh, she's a, a writer, uh, Marina Budos is her name. She mm-hmm. was the one who really kind of, you know, I, I want to say beat me up and, 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 you know, tried to get me on track. I mean, she then later created a, a, a separate writing sh- workshop just for people who are working on novels. Because it's a very different thing. If you're going to a, a class, everyone else is writing a short story, and you're bringing in a chapter of a novel, they want very different things from it. You know, a, a, a short story is going to resolve in those 15 to 20 pages. A chapter may do the opposite and try and ask the reader more questions that it's ever going to answer. So... That was great, having a novel workshop and having her, <laughs> What was there were a couple of phrases that they would come in and I'd hear every time, like, we, we like this, we just want more. And it was, you know, me glossing over like the descriptions and, and kind of the emotional 
rhythm of a story and tending to just fly along on dialogue. So th this is very painful, uh, Jeff. I ha wish you hadn't brought this up. In <laughs> <laughs> really, you know, a funny way, it, it kind of is because I spent so many years and I, I sometimes look back and think I was so stupid. The one problem, if people are starting out writing, write short stories because... As Douglas Lane, I had a conversation with uh, he about this, and he said, it's an opportunity to fail faster because it would take me a year and a half to write a novel, and then I would get feedback on it and think, oh, this is terrible. I can't. I, I can't go and start writing it again. I've got a better idea. And so I'd write another one and, and learn just what I could have on a short story and maybe, I don't know, a month. So that's my advice and, out there, and, short stories. And, and I'm, I'm curious, have you ever gone back and tried to mine any of those uh, <laughs> those novels or, or, or attempts at novels? You know, I thought about that recently because I, I've, I've finished the third in this kind of trilogy. Uh, it's Gray, a Yarn, and the third is called Loom. It's not finished, finished, but I have a you know the the draft written. So I, I was kind of figuring out what would I do next, and I was thinking back to some of them. And the problem is, <laughs> there's not a there's not a lot to steal from. You know, I'd love to steal from myself. <laughs> I mean, some of them like a cool idea is a sentence or two, and that was all I was going on. I haven't though looked at them. A lot of them are probably just gone. I mean, they were on hard disks or floppy right. disks. Yeah. So, um, have you have you ever thought about it? I mean, you know, obviously you said it was it was painful to think about, you know, uh, spending that time and and then you know having a a work that was primarily dialogue and 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 you know not as much story. But I'm curious if you've ever thought about what kept you going during those <laughs> during, during during those years and those uh, workshops and 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 those attempts at various novels. A precise uh, mix of coffee and beer is what kept me going, Jeff. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I just, I wanted it. I, I wasn't going to give up. I mean, I just was going to keep trying. I just, that's all, you know. I, I mean, I certainly had times when I was just like, I can't do this. I'm, I, I give up. I, I, and I would not write for a while. But invariably, I felt like I, I can't. I can't not do it. I had to. I had to try again. I had to, and and also you'd get. I'd get some inspiration and think, aha, now I understand it. You know, and of course I didn't most of the time. But right, uh, I'm curious. I mean, given that um, the the two books, uh, Gray and Yarn, and then and then you mentioned Loom, and and the fact that you are. Uh, you are up for the Philip K. Dick Award. Um, I'm not sure. Is it nominee? Is that how you would refer to it? I guess so. Um, uh, 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 as you were writing those various novels, were, were they science fiction? Or is that something that you came to later? Or was that always kind of um, there? Um, here's, here's what I, th I think the answer is. Uh, Gray started back in college as a short story. Uh, I don't have that piece anymore. It was very different from what the book turned out to be. But that was the one thing that I would keep going back to and fiddle around with. Everything else I kind of would just 
once I was finished with it, I, I didn't think there was anything to work with again, you know, so I would leave them up by the side, like I said. But I would return to Gray, and after I came back from Japan, I had... I wrote another draft of it. I wrote it, I changed it from a short story into a novel with some of the stuff I'd I'd experienced in Japan and partly being, you know, just back from Japan, my head was science fiction. I mean, Japan seemed like science fiction mostly to me. But a lot of what I wrote otherwise was not. Um some were trying to be thrillers. Uh, some were really kind of mainstream. I mean, the, I came very close to pub- getting a book published that was mainstream. It was a kind of a coming of age story, you know, kind of like the the first book everyone is supposed to write. Um, I had some other agents kind of interested in it. They liked the writing, but the story wasn't still quite strong enough. Um, and then I had sorry, a you're you're breaking up. Gray, I didn't hear that. And she thought it was wonderful, and she said, "Oh, well, I know an agent who might like this. Who's?" And I was introduced at a party, and you know the rest. The rest is history, as they say. Great. Did that answer have, the have you have you always read science fiction? Have you been a, a fan of the genre? Uh, I I never considered myself any kind of a f- fan, really. I just read what appealed to me, uh, and but what appealed to me was a lot of um, like um, Gibson and. Uh, and Dick, and um, I'm blanking on the guy that is, um, who wrote Crash? Oh my God. Stevenson. J.J. Ba- or... Ballard. Oh, 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 gotcha, gotcha. I, th- I was yeah. thinking of uh, Snow Crash. Right, right. Um, that kind of stuff has appealed to me greatly. Um, I still, though, read, I mean, I used to always say my favorite author is maybe, you know, Nabokov, although I haven't reread him in years and years and years. And some of his stuff I can't stand and can't read. But um, I read a whole bunch of different things. I also think Mm -hmm. that another huge influence uh, on me was early on when I was like in junior high school, I was trying to read Buckminster Fuller. He was the uh, (laughs) inventor, thinker, philosopher, perhaps even, you know, wacko to some degree. Right. Um, and that probably reads a bit like sci- sci-fi in a way. Um, I remember just loving it, but I'm sure I didn't understand half of it. <laughs> I don't think he understood half of it. <laughs> the geodesic dome. Yeah, geodesic dome. And then the other exactly. thing, he had all these what were called dimaction. That was a word he'd invented. And he had the dimaction car, a dimaction bathroom. I mean, he's just... I still, I mean, I use some of those kinds of things in in my books. I mean, I think in some place I mentioned a fog shower, I think. And that's a Buckminster Fuller idea of saving water by taking, you know, not having running water, but a, a fog mist kind of a thing is what he described. So I still, right. I still steal from old Bucky. <laughs> well, we're recording this podcast the day after Borders Books, one of the two major book rate retailing chains in the U.S., declared bankruptcy. With the rapid adoption of ebooks, the book publishing industry is undergoing a lot of change very quickly. Is it something that you give much thought to in terms of the the business of publishing? And I'm curious what your thinking is about ebooks. Hmm. I no, I haven't given it a ton of thought. I do uh, read uh, a number of books on my iPod Touch. Um, 
a lot for the podcast because I'm reading the industry does give um, PDF galleys, I think, because it's it's almost free, I would guess, you know, to, to instead mm-hmm. of printing galleys and sending them out. So I've read a number of books that way that were pretty inconvenient to read, quite frankly. Um, I, mean, I, I just finished one where I had a, a watermark on every page, you know, the said property <laughs> of blah, blah, blah. And it was in kind of dark gray. And there were times when I had to zoom in and think, what are these words here? Um, but I got through it. It was an, a very enjoyable book. Um, I love the idea that I have a hundred novels in my pocket if I'm somewhere and have time and I, I can read. But I've also gotten paper gal I mean paper galley books these you know a couple uh, recently. And sometimes they're just a joy to read, to sit down and have that sense of uh the book in your hand, the the weight, the pages, the the typography is so much more more so much more uh, uh readable and, and, and beautiful most often without a doubt but um you know i mean i i it, it i don't know <laughs> it's all it's i mean granted it's all going digital i mean there's no question i mean when's the last time you bought a cd i mean oh yeah yeah and and even having one is a burden i mean uh, agreed. Agreed. I, 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 I totally agree. I mean, I think it's inevitable. And there was a story in the New York Times about a week and a half ago about the number of um, preteens and teens who received e-readers for the holidays this past holiday and, and the the growth in YA literature in ebook format. So so right there, you're going to have a next generation who thinks nothing of, of reading on um, a device. But I also I'm also much more skeptical of various pundits who have have said, you know, by 2015, you're not going to be able to, you know, you're not going to see bookstores. I think that's that's wildly not the case. Wait, a, a pundit is wrong? I think so. I think so. (laughs) I think we alluded, I think we alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious if you have advice for writers who are trying to publish their own novels or short stories, given your own experiences as as you've kind of detailed. Yeah. uh, Well, I mean, like I said before, work on short stories, even though, uh, you know, placing a short story is very difficult. Uh, but it can be done. I mean, there's also a lot of respected internet places where you can place it. But m- more importantly, it's about, you know, learning and and just going through and trying different things much faster than writing novels. But the other thing, um, I remember when I was, you know, writing stuff out there, the idea of getting an agent loomed so big in my head and was in the end, so unimportant that I'm, I'm, I, I know I spent all sorts of time and money and effort worrying about that before it needed to be worried about. I mean, I right. used to buy those, what were those things, those agent resources, or I forget. Yes, guide yes, Jeff Herman's guide. Yeah. Uh, I bought those, and I would get them as presents from family. You know, they all thought that was, <laughs> that was the key. But the, the key is having something that an agent is going to want. And getting it to them is actually not the hard part. I mean, getting good enough so that you can be coveted by agents is the hard part. I mean, 
when I had that, and I didn't even quite know it, you know, I, I, my, I just sent it to her. I mean, you know, <laughs> and she, that was it. It was insanely easy. Now, I had someone who recommended it, but we all, you know, it's at six degrees of separation. Sure. Even if you're in the middle of the country, it makes no difference. You know someone who knows someone. I mean, the internet has made that completely a moot point. It's all, to me, it's all about getting good stuff on the page and making, you know, your writing excellent. That's, that's hard. But the rest of the stuff is not so terribly hard. And all the energy I spent on it is, was wasted. I mean, all the postage. Basically, what I did was send out stuff that wasn't that good and didn't really know it and didn't realize it and wasted time on postage and wasted their time and blah, blah, blah. That was all needless. Right. Well, well, great. Well, again, I've been speaking with John Armstrong, author of the new novel Yarn, available at your local bookstore or online. And you can also check out his podcast if you're just joining us. John, where can people find you online besides the podcast? Um, my name, John Armstrong, and I spell J. J um, <laughs> as soon as I say that, I think I don't spell it. My parents, you know, spelled it for me. <laughs> my, my parents <laughs> named me J-O-N, John Armstrong. So um, if you, you can Google John Armstrong, there are a couple other John Armstrongs. And in fact, early on in the podcast, I did one where I, it was called the high-ranking Google John Armstrongs, you know, J-O-N Armstrong, because there's a designer and a magician who I had seen, you know, <laughs> when I was, what was that called? Ego surfed. I'd say, well, who's this magician with my name? And so I, I called them up and spoke with both of them. And it was interesting because they both knew of me, of course, because they Googled their own name and I'd come up. And who's this dude? What's he about? So it was a kind of a funny gathering of, you know, seeing kind of like the shadow of someone else with your name online and trying to suss out who they were and what they were doing. Uh, it was a, that was a fun show. That's great. That's great. I guess I, I don't remember that one. That's, that's a wonderful that's idea. <laughs> it's, I, I was thinking of doing it again because uh, it was early enough that my recording a prowess was not that great. And I think one of the guys was on a cell phone. And I think I'd like duct taped a microphone to, you know, a, a, a phone to get the audio on that side. And it was, you know, not very good. So I have, I have right. better techniques now. But uh, anyway. Well, well, great. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was a, a great pleasure to be on. This is Lee Child, and I'm listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.